Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast Paleo Jam. I am sitting in a hotel room in Adelaide with the one and only um, Dr. Nick Rawlins. G'day, Nick. Hi, thanks for having me on. And um, now we've known each other for some years. 10, 15 odd years, I'd say. Takes us back to Paleontology Week at the South Australian Museum. Um, but you are, um, and some of you may detect from the accent as the show goes on, you are from New Zealand. Yeah, so originally born in Nelson, uh, did my PhD at the University of Adelaide and now work at the University of Otago where I head the ancient DNA lab there. Cool, and we'll come to all of that in a moment. But one of the things we often do in this show is that we each bring an object. And normally I'll get the guest to start with their object. But this time I'm going to start with mine. Because mine is a book. Mine is a book called The Future Eaters by Tim Flannery. And it was a really instructive book for me in terms of... This was the first time I learnt about Australian megafauna. But there's also a chapter in the book, which is what leads us to, to you, Nick. There's a chapter in the book about New Zealand. And what was so remarkably striking to me about that book is the way that Tim almost poetically describes it as an island of birds and frogs and just picturing that and all of the ecological niches taken over by birds and frogs so what we're going to talk about today is is what we know about prehistoric New Zealand so Mm. take us back a thousand years so yeah we're we're talking about um the time before Polynesian arrival and around about 1280 AD and we had very few land mammals it's a couple of bats um, and all of the niches all the job vacancies in the ecosystem were filled by birds and hepatofauna so we, we, we had kiwi we had nine species of moa from the, the size of a um, small turkey through to some of the true giants like the, the, the South Island giant moa which could reach up to about three metres tall but so you don't have giraffes, you've got moa. We've got moa. We, we've got what we call purple chonks, the the, the takahe and the, the moho, the North Island takahe, and some really enigmatic birds like the adzbill, which um, is about, about a metre high, really stocky, um, primitive uh, rail that we call a killer tank. had a really, really pointed bill that could um, stab birds to death. And that, that's quite... Its origins are really, really weird. It's related to... Um, the, the Madagascan fluff tails, which are some of the most smallest um, birds in the world. But we were ruled by birds, um, but also uh, Tuatara, um, the Rhynchocephalans. We had we had the Leopelmatid frogs and we had um, skinks and geckos. So everywhere you walked, you would have been stepping on frogs or skinks and geckos. You would have had birds running underfoot and our beaches were full of... Um, Seabirds. There'd be seabirds nesting in the mountains. There'd be penguins in the beaches and the forest, and um, sea lions and fur seals. And uh, for a lot of people in New Zealand, southern elephant seals you wouldn't think of as being quintessentially New Zealand, but we had them from the top of New Zealand to the bottom. And you touch on penguins because 
penguins probably came from New Zealand. Yeah, from the New Zealand and Antarctic region. So the the, the, the cradle of penguin evolution and then just radiated it out all around the, the world. The cradle of penguin civilization. Yeah. But and, and, and it, it's what I love about trying to visualize mm. it is that it gives us a very different an alternative view mm. of of how an ecosystem can be formed yeah using you know we, we, mammals aren't we, we we don't have to be there <laughs> no we don't we don't it's like you you can have um the, the same jobs that mammals do filled by um filled by birds and reptiles it's like if you think of mammals spread um seeds we have giant wetter which are these giant flightless um grasshoppers that can actually eat and spread seeds like mice we sometimes call them invertebrate mice we um and that there, there's a famous phrase in um biogeography so studying where animals are and why is explain new zealand and the rest of the world falls into place around it which is that perfectly epitomizes that penguin example yeah and it is interesting to when in reading Flannery's book for me it was like seeing this this sense of Australia as this unique place because we mm. often you know yes we've got marsupials we've got yeah. we've got we've got these weird mammals that carry their babies mm. around in a bag and yeah. and, and we we're, we're dominated by eucalypts and stuff so we've got we've got a, this remarkably unique thing mm. but this was my first sudden realization it's like wow wow little I mean, you, you mentioned grasshopper, like the, the yeah. grasshopper mice thing. Yeah. And but but there would have been birds, little small birds running along the ground. Oh, there would have been. We had um, acanthid wrens, so the 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 most primitive perching birds in the world, are like the rock wren and the rifleman. As they're only about oh, five or so centimeters high, and they would have been running all around on the ground, um, flightless. And you find their fossils now in, in subfossil sites, but. Um, they've been neglected in, in, in research quite a lot trying to reconstruct what New Zealand was like because everyone's focused on the big showy things like the mower and the harst eagle and um, the takahe and the adsbill. Yeah, so, all right, let, let's, 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 so you weren't able to bring a fossil from where you came from. Sadly, no. <laughs> I didn't have the import permit. You didn't have the import permit, but you and I are currently yeah. looking at a photograph of a bone that's yeah, about... so we're talking about a bone that's about a meter, meter and a half long. Um, it's of a male South Island giant mower. It's um, probably a teenager. So while um, uh, at the end that connects down to the tarsometatarsis, your foot bone, um, all the epiphyses, all the knobbly bumps on bone bits are all fused. Um, the opposite end here that c uh, connects to your knee joint, your patella in the bottom of your that femur. That was him tapping his knee, by the yeah. way. <laughs> um, it's the ends haven't fused, so we're talking about a, a bird that's still still growing. But um, right, and you can tell that because of that. The, yeah, the fact that it's not fused yet. It's not fused. So we, in adults, um, the ends of your bone are completely um, fused. And so uh, a friend of mine, Graham Lowe, was um, who. Uh, used to work for New Zealand's Department of Conservation, the equivalent of the Wildlife Service here, um, was down the bottom of the cliffs uh, below a prion uh, seabird colony on Otago Peninsula and said, we've got a mower bone eroding out. We need you to come along. And so um, five-minute reacquaintance with abseiling and then over the side of the cliff, um, don't look down, 
and got down there and we found this this was all that was left but really really well preserved it was it was coming out of um calcareous calcium rich sediment it was cold this thing is still waxy and shiny and solid so what what does that that particular bone tell us so we can um, radiocarbon date that bone to work out its age. We haven't radiocarbon dated this one, but we've radiocarbon dated others, and we, we know we've got moa bones uh, in New Zealand from um, about the, the latest individuals are about 1400 AD, and then the oldest ones we're getting are about um, fifty to 60,000 years, and then there are a few more that are a bit older, around about... 300,000 years, a million years, and then there's scrappy bits of moa bone um, from the St. Bathans fossil uh, deposit in central Otago about 15 to 19 million years. And, and carbon dating is accurate up to about 50 or 60? About 50 000? to 60, yeah. Yeah, so anything else you have to use other yeah. techniques. Yeah, um, and in New Zealand our fossil record uh, becomes really patchy after that, so we're, we're, we're using very different techniques the further we go back in time. Yeah, so... so we, we when we, we when we hear of of prehistoric New Zealand, we do often hear about the moas, these, yeah. these giant birds, mm. um, like giraffe-like. Into well, not yeah. I mean, three meters is a tall bird, mm. very tall bird. <laughs> it's a very tall bird. But they were they, they weren't they weren't like the demon duck of doom, were they? The the some of these dromaeosaur sort of things that 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 we had here in Australia. Yeah, so the moa were um, what we call paleonaths, what we used to call ratites. So in birds you've got um, paleonaths, which have old palate, old roof of the mouth, and then all other birds are neonaths, um, new palate. And so um, paleonaths um, are all uh, like your emu, your cassowary, ostrich, the extinct elephant birds, rears, um, tinamous in South America. They're the only... Um, living paleonath that can fly as they all independently lost flight um after the extinction of the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs from a um ancestor uh we call lathornid that was flying around the world whereas your um dromornithids your demon ducks of doom are more related to um gallo and seriforms your 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 ducks your uh your, your chickens but they superficially look really similar there's actually um described by oliver's uh um, who so Walter Oliver, who used to be the director of the um, National Museum in New Zealand, in a classic book, The Moas of Australia and New Zealand, and there's Pachyornis Queenslandiae, which was a moa living in Australia that turned out to be a misidentified and mislocalised bone. Right. Which, which and the great thing about paleontology though is that's that we you're constantly updating and, and yeah you're, you can't, you're revisiting fossils and you're looking at fossils that might have been sitting in a drawer for for a hundred years and you've got a hundred years of knowledge and you go back to it and it's like oh actually yeah. that wasn't that that's this we've been doing that we've been um, one of my fantastic master's students Lockie Scarsbrook who's now at the University of Oxford uh, started doing three D geometric morphometrics three D scanning of gecko bones and uh, also developed a technique that you can extract and sequence ancient DNA from these fossils without destroying the bone. So if you've got a large mole bone like this one, you can drill a hole into this, get ancient DNA, work out what species it is, work out its whakapapa or family tree, but that bone can handle being sampled. If you're talking about a tiny small gecko bone, you sample it, it and gets it's gone. destroyed, it's gone, and you've got a <laughs> the very sample pissed is off the bone. Yeah, 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 curator. Yeah. 
is when he started that research uh, our knowledge of geckos was um, you can only identify them by size you can't do it by shape and everything gets binned into these coarse loose time bins and that's what underpinned all of uh, using paleontology to inform conservation so conservation paleontology Lockyer came along and re-analyzed everything and said well size got thrown out with the bathwater you can identify everything by shape we can work out uh, impacts of humans what the species related to impacts of the ice ages and it's now our knowledge of skinks and geckos in New Zealand is tabula rasa it's a paleontological clean slate okay so um, just recently um, you your phone went crazy yep this morning with lots of Twitter notifications. So, oh God, what have I done? What have you done? <laughs> um, but a uh, uh, New Zealand journalist, Jenny Nichols, has included you on her list of the hits and misses of a more of what she describes a more turbulent year than most. I should advise you, dear listeners, that uh, you are one of the hits. Yeah. Not the misses. Very humbled by that. Glad and, to be not one of the misses. <laughs> um, and she talks about this like extraordinary amount of of research that you've done particularly uh, uh, and, and particularly the articles in the conversation mm. conversation magazine and i had a look at it, it's like what i've got one two three four five six seven that like, a, a lot of academics might do one mm. or two in a yeah. you've done seven seven this year seven. and i've had a blog lost worlds vanished lives blog running for a few years so yeah and and, and so firstly congratulations mm. on on the notoriety oh thank you but good notoriety um and an acknowledgement of your work mm. one of the articles that that you talk about and this comes back to i suppose the the the, the stories of prehistoric mm. new zealand was an article where you talk about you know that new zealand should celebrate its remarkable prehistoric heritage with national fossil emblems in the same way that so here in South Australia mm. we have Spragina Western Australia yeah. has the go-go fish Queensland now has Mataburrasaurus um, and most Australian states now mm. have a fossil emblem something that started in the US I think yeah but, but so what it, what it, what it, for you what are you are you allowed to say as somebody who's driving this campaign what would be your top five what would be your for me um my top five and it could be across any time period yeah so my top five um one would have to be quintessentially harst eagle but not because it's big and flashy it's um for for us the campaign with the fossil emblems they've got to show a, a really good story of how our animals adapted to new zealand's dynamic geological climatic and human history so uh the ancestors of Haas eagle are the smallest eagles in the world. It's the booted eagle and the little eagle from Australia, one kilogram. They arrived one million years ago, and no, not one million years ago. Sorry, two and a half million years ago, and within that time period, they grew to the largest eagle in the world. Um, and they're your lion, your tiger, your bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd have Ads Bill, this very weird bird um, that that we call a killer, killer tank. Um, it was predatory, and again. Its ancestors probably arrived anywhere between 25 and 40 million years ago, and um, the the related to the Madagascan fluff tails. But they're only found in Madagascar and Africa now. But we actually think those birds were spread right around the world because there's another extinct bird in uh, Haiti, the Haitian cave rail, that's 
part of that same group. Um, I'd probably go... Oh, number three. Um, uh, fossil leaves out of Foldemar. So this uh, 23 million year old Lagerstaten uh, fossil deposit that preserves uh, 180,000 years of history. And these leaves are so well preserved you can actually look at them under the microscope, measure the size of the stomata or the opening that allows in carbon dioxide and oxygen and reconstruct climate through time. So a very humble fossil. That's pretty cool. And for those who don't know, Lagerstaten is a uh, high quality... Yeah, high quality noxic lake that literally just pickles the fossils and preserves stuff in really yeah. nice detail. And it's a fabulous... Uh, yeah, preservation. Yeah. Yep, okay, that's three. Um, three, I would... So on to number four, I think. Number yes. four, I would probably go um, the Mosasaur skulls um, out of uh, Eastern North Island, discovered by Joan Whiffen, and this just highlights um, how amateur um, paleontologists are just so important to New Zealand and Australia's paleontology, like the complete... Plessy saw skeleton that's just been discovered up in Queensland. Is Joan Whiffen um, wasn't paid. She she was uneducated, and she discovered New Zealand's first dinosaurs. A lot of our marine reptiles. She wrote and described um, extinct marine reptile species. She conversed with paleontologists over here in Australia and really built up New Zealand's knowledge of dinosaurs. And she wasn't an academic. So so. Coming back to that mosasaur, so mm. we here in South Australia, yeah. a lot of our uh, marine reptiles mm. are Cretaceous and yeah. opalized. So what, what? So mosasaur. Are we talking? We're talking about Lake Cretaceous uh, for so mosasaurs. Similar kind of period. Yeah. So we're a lot of uh, ones in Australia talking about your um, elasmosaurs, plesiosaurs, plesiosaurs, your plesiosaur group, and your ichthyosaurs. Uh, mosasaurs turn up on the scene after ichthyosaurs have gone extinct. Um, there, there's some theory that um, one of the theories is that maybe mosasaurs outcompeted um, ichthyosaurs, but I know there's also cli climate change theories as well for why they went extinct. Yeah, and it could be that that ichthyosaurs went extinct and then there was a niche yeah. that opened up and yeah. mosasaurs have gone, oh, we're going to jump in there. Yeah. Which is what I was reading about what happened with penguins mm. as well. So penguins, so marine reptiles kind of disappeared. Yeah. And then penguins, which would have with these birds yeah. hanging around by the beach, have gone. Hang on a minute, I might go and grab a bit of fish. Yeah. And then over a period of time, they are then these filled this marine predation niche and got big very quickly. Yeah, and and there are there are so we, the emperor penguin is the biggest one yeah. now, but there were there were two meter tall two penguins. meter two and a half meter tall penguins hanging out in New Zealand. That's a yeah. big penguin. Big penguins. <laughs> big suited gentleman walking around. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's, that's four. four. Number five. Um, oh, that's a tough one. What would I go for number five? Yeah, because the first four were always easy. Because you're like, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the fifth one, you're suddenly thinking, if I pick that, then I can't pick that because I've only got one left. Mm. Yeah, I'd probably say number five would be um, one of the gecko bones that Lockie and I have been working on because. Um, they've been neglected for a while and so in paleontology you focus on the big things um, you, you try to do ecological niche modelling so you use your, your fossil record to inform where animals were work out what climate variables 
dictate where those animals were and then you can project that distribution forward and back in time for look at how the ice age affected them but also look at how future climate change protect um affects them but we when we do that we actually have to do modeling of let's model where these animals were but then let's take into account the depositional bias of big things preserved better than small things but also um finder or paleontological bias paleontologists are obsessed with the big things and not the small things so kind of a, a vote for the little the little guy of you can tell some really exquisitely cool stories with the tiny small fossils that are half the size of your little well south australia sprigina just saying yeah <laughs> first animal with like well probably animal because mm. of the biosymmetry yeah. symmetry thing and stuff and maybe a brain maybe because mm. it had a head end though there, there was a fossil discovery recently where they've found a, a wormy thing um that they think well, certainly has got the first evidence of neuron type stuff yeah. in its head what we don't have with Sprigina is that yeah. it's got a head and you presume with a head it's probably got yeah. thinking things in it um alright we've got well, yeah, we've, we've still got a still got a few minutes to go um so let's come to your to, so your specialty yeah. is, is is DNA um and everyone gets very excited when you talk to paleontologists <laughs> about DNA they're like, oh, let's bring back T-Rex, except you can't, because it wouldn't be T-Rex. Um, I mean, you can re-engineer a chicken and give it teeth and stuff, but yeah, you... but DNA, like the oldest DNA now is, is it's been pushed back. It's the oldest DNA um, out of a bone is about 1.2 million years, but the oldest DNA uh, full stop is out of Greenland. I think that's two two and a half million years environment ancient environmental dna and and that dna is that when it's complete because it degrades doesn't yeah it'll be highly it'll be highly fragmented chemically modified um right so there are a whole lot of gaps in it you'll be a whole lot of gaps yeah and we don't know what the gaps are no so you can't fill them in with frog dna no well, that'll because, cause all manner of problems. <laughs> because that's the thing, is that because yeah. we don't know the, the the great challenge is that we don't know what those gaps yeah. are. So what we have to do is we have um, we have uh, sophisticated DNA extraction techniques that allow us to get those tiny, tiny, small fragments down to about thirty base pairs, and then we've got techniques that allow you to build what we call a library. So we take our fragmented DNA, we put some known DNA sequences on the end of those fragments. And that allows us to um, uh, basically what we call immortalize the library so it is always there. And we can go through an either shotgun sequence, so we just sequence everything in our DNA extract and throw bucket tons of money at it and to get a genome, or we do a thing what we call hybridization capture. So it's effectively phishing, is we have our DNA extract, uh, you can think of it as the C, it's got the DNA we want, so the fish we want, and it's got a whole lot of other things we don't want. And then we have our fishing hook with a bit of DNA, our bait on it from a closely related species, and we go fishing for the DNA we want. So we enrich our sample for DNA, and then we can go sequence that. So the idea is we all sequence all of the DNA, lots and lots of little pieces, and then rebuild it like a jigsaw. So you have it, your little pieces of DNA will all overlap and you build up that that jigsaw. And what you hope is that you get enough coverage across the entire genome 
and then enough coverage of each individual A, G, C, and T, the building blocks of life, that you have an accurate genome out the other end. But that's always the big if. Again, and a very big if. Essentially, as you were talking, I was thinking of that. So, so you know, paleontologists that deal with, with things at a, at a, at a, at a eye level yeah. so that you see it like, like dealing mm. with bones and stuff you you often compare bones of an existing animal or like you yeah. compare bones of a, of a, of a cassowary yeah. with a t-rex mm. and stuff and is it a bit like that so you've Ye- got dna of known things yeah so we'll have so that helps you in a similar way but obviously yeah. different in a similar way to what you can use modern skeletons can yeah. compare with the past skeleton of a close relative or what you think is a close relative is that yeah no it's very similar so whereas paleontologists um will have our unknown species and then they'll have they have a whole lot of reference species and they will look at um osteological characters or bumps on bones and uh work out if they're the same or different and reconstruct an evolutionary tree is we will have the dna of our unknown species a whole lot of reference dna sequences and we'll reconstruct an evolutionary tree that way we and we we use the same programs we use the same statistical methods to work out how robust is the phylogeny or the evolutionary family tree we're reconstructing yeah okay so it's jigsaw puzzles it's yeah prehistoric jigsaw puzzles but we're talking about uh with ancient dna we're talking about um the jigsaw puzzle uh has been put in a wood-fired pizza oven at 500 degrees and your dna is the analogy i use and the dna has become completely fragmented and then you're you're trying to reconstruct it from put it back together yeah i often use the example of a jigsaw puzzle where because you don't have the picture on the front as a paleontologist you uh, you might have a jigsaw puzzle that has you've only got one piece yeah. of a thousand pieces, or you might have twenty four jigsaw puzzles where you've got three pieces of one, two pieces of another, one piece yeah. of another, and they are all mixed up together. And you have to work out, you have to pull all of those pieces out and work out what each of those twenty seven pictures mm. look like. So it's a bit, which is quite challenging. Oh, very challenging. <laughs> and and why I guess um, it takes a lot of time to work in it and, and to, to work through the yeah. things okay we've, we've got a few minutes left let me think um if you could go back to any time period in new zealand just to and and you would be in a bubble so you wouldn't yeah. be stepping on an insect and wiping out all subsequent life yeah but you're in a bubble just to be able to observe it to, mm. to, because reconstructing the past is what you do yeah. it's what paleontologists do you want to know which is what for me that that flannery description was so fascinating was yeah. this island of birds and frogs where in new zealand or when in new zealand given that there is a continent yeah um i'd probably say for me i'd probably say the 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 height of the last ice age because what what we're finding is much like um in australia or other parts of um uh the world was always thought that you could reconstruct how one species was impacted and it'd be the same across all species but we're increasingly finding out that um each species is individualistic um in their responses so to go back to as the ice age is creeping in just see what are the animals doing so what, what are the small ones doing how are they handling the impacts of the ice age with the fundamental changes in their environment and the forest retreating and 
um, habitat change and how are the big animals handling it um, as well. Yeah, and, and in New Zealand, of course, there's a much more recent history of humans arriving yeah. and their impact. Mm. Um, and what do we know about that in the, the minute or so? That so been? we know Polynesians arrived around about 1280 AD and um, through um, habitat destruction, through burning of, burning of the environment, um, through uh, hunting, and it didn't have to be overhunt, what we call classical overhunting. It could be what you would call now... Uh, low levels of sustainable hunting were still enough to cause these very slow breeding species to go extinct. But they also brought with them uh, Kiori, the Pacific rat, um, Kuri, the Polynesian dog, both predators, and there was a suite of extinctions um, very quickly. And then Polynesia, uh, not Polynesians, Europeans arrived and brought their own suite. So uh, just in the birds, you've gone, you've lost about 80 species of birds from the time of human arrival, around about 1280 AD, to now. Which is Insane. massive. It's huge. and We're adding to it with our work about every year. Yeah, and it's, it's what happens when you, you introduce an apex predator into, yep. a, into such a unique ecosystem yeah. that, that has, has existed on its own for millions of years. You introduce yep. this, this, this new species and all of a sudden... There are species in New Zealand that are so well adapted to an ecosystem without humans, they cannot deal with humans now. Well, that is what we call the end of the show. Thank you so much, Nick, for taking the time out of your holiday here in Adelaide to chat with us. Thank you for having me. It's been great to catch up after so long. It's time to spread some paleo jam.